WDBM East Lansing. 89 FM. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Good evening. Thank you for joining us on Exposure, our news magazine talk show. I'm Abby Newton. Now the campus is stirring as Spartans slowly make their way back for the year, only 22 days until classes begin. Now today on Exposure, we will be talking about the hidden world behind the animals at the Potter Park Zoo, the life of a zookeeper. We also will give you the latest update about construction on campus, and we preview the Great Lakes Folk Festival. Throughout the show, you will hear tunes from the festival that will occur this weekend in East Lansing. Also this week in East Lansing, Michigan State is hosting the World Dwarf Games. The games are a multi-sport competition designed for athletes with dwarfism. The 2013 games will have over 500 athletes from over 25 nations. Michigan State University student Jeffrey Astrine will be competing in basketball and volleyball this week. For me, I have to say it's two things. First thing, it's mainly having fun. It's a unique opportunity to uh, play with people my height and play sports I've wanted to do in a while instead of bumming around doing nothing over summer anyways. So, and then the other thing is I'm actually the only MSU student playing here. I've been at MSU a total of seven years. Um, including seven years in the A-Zone, which is MSU's basketball student section. It's quite a thing to kind of guard our court while welcoming everything, everyone. It's an honor for whoever comes to be able to play in um, MSU's home court. We wish him the best of luck. He has quite a few Spartans rallied around him. One of the most popular activities for children, families, and even adults during the summer is going to the zoo. Many enjoy watching the baboons leap from tree to tree while others like roaring with the tigers or laughing with the hyenas. However, have you ever thought about the individuals who bring you the zoo experience? Well, we went to Potter Park Zoo and met zookeeper Kim Hernandez. 
What does your typical day entail? It's a lot of cleaning and feeding, um, but we also try to spend time doing training and enrichment with the animals and stuff. But, I mean, most of it, you know, there's a lot of cleaning, of course, involved, and they eat, like, some animals eat once a day, some have to eat, like, three times a day, so it varies. And what do you mean when you say training and enrichment? Um, enrichment, well, it's just to kind of stimulate the animal, give them something to do so they're, you know, just to get them active. Um, so we'll do, like, sometimes live food enrichment, sometimes, like, like right now in the summer we do, like, a lot of sickles, so a lot of, like, frozen treats and stuff that they have to manipulate and try to get, like, the fish out of it. Um, it's basically just to give them something to do so they're not bored. Uh, training, um, we try to do a lot of training, especially with our animals where, like, you can't just go in and grab. Um, so, like, training with the otters, you know, getting them to, like, for example, coming into this little PVC tube here and being able to, like, you know, if you have to poke them or give them vaccinations and injections. And a lot of the training is, is directed towards, like, uh, veterinary stuff, like to help out our vet staff or, um, um, like, shifting so you can get the animal to easily shift so you can safely go into the cage, you know, that they're not in. And, but in order to do that, you got to train them, you got to work with them to get them to do all that stuff. So it makes your life easier, the vet's life easier, and mm -hmm. everybody's happy. <laughs> and they like it, too, because they get rewarded. <laughs> I'm sure. The sickles sound good. <laughs> yeah. What's the biggest challenge of being a zookeeper? Um, the biggest challenge of being a zookeeper is, I think it's the paranoia of making sure you're doing everything right that you can for the animal, you know, making sure you're locking your locks, because, you know, I'm, you know, you check a lock, and you're like, did I just lock that lock? Wait, let me check it. Wait, did I just lock that lock? Let me check it again. Like, you, you, just being over, like, OCD on, you know, making sure your locks are locked and challenging, like, well, that can go either way because, you know, even with the animals, like, sometimes animals just don't do what you want them to do. It can really makes your life a little bit difficult. <laughs> and you can't make them, so, like, a rhino, what are you going to do, like, push him to the other side of the cage. No, you got to wait till he shifts. You can't do anything about it. So that's definitely a challenge. Um, and that's why training is very important. Um, uh, I'm losing my thought now. <laughs> What's your favorite part of being a zookeeper? My favorite part, well, I do really enjoy working with the animals. Um, I mean, you get to do things that people just don't, on an everyday basis, don't get to do, which is, you know, who gets to feed a rhino? Mm -hmm. Like, nobody. Like, <laughs> only if you get some special behind the scenes tour or whatever. Like you get to, so there's a lot of, there's just a lot of cool things. Like I never thought like when we hand raised our tiger cubs, like I got to help in bottle feeding them. And you know, with our baby otter here, I got to help, I got to help with that. Like that's just, it's just amazing, so. How do you feed a rhino? How do you feed a rhino? Well, normally they, they'll ship them, they put their food and ship them, but they do use like produce and stuff. They'll cut up produce and hand feed them for, you know, give them treats for, you know, actually just, they have that prehensile lip and they'll just grab it right from your hand. So um, you, actually, you can actually hand feed a rhino. And when you have a new animal, either from a different zoo or from the wild, or you have, you know, a new baby, how do you adapt them to the life in a zoo? Um, well, let's see, uh, a new animal from the wild, well, I mean, we do our best to make them comfortable. Um, sometimes you can tell, like, if something's, like, frightening it, and you can get, like, that object out of there. Um, usually it's a slow process. We'll start them by themselves, and then, like, if it's going to end up with another animal, then we might introduce them to, like, a howdy situation, and, and usually, um, 
most animals adapt really well. We've had a few exceptions where like our one tiger, she's just, she was just never happy here. So she's in another zoo and she's as happy as can be there. <laughs> How do you know when an animal's happy? Um, um, they're not like hiding like in the back corner of their, their pen and like, and like if it's unhappy, it might sit there, depending on what type of animal it is, it will growl at you or not want to come up and like if you hand feed it, like take a treat from your hand or anything like that. And you can tell, I mean, just like when a person gets depressed, the animal gets depressed too. And you can, you can just see that. And that's a part of being a zookeeper. Like you need to be able to know, you know that animal. So I can tell like, like for example, the, I work with the wolves. I'm like, that wolf's kind of off today. Like she just doesn't seem right. Like she's not, she's feeling a little under the weather. Like you can just tell when they're not, they're not right. And how do you build that animal human connection? Um, usually, you know, feeding them, you know, they associate you with their food. Um, training, um, you build that bond when you work with that animal, you know, as often, whether it's every day or every other day, um, they seem to come up and recognize you. Uh, uh, if it's an animal that was born here, like just working with it from birth, you build that bond then. Um, oh, I can't think of anything else. <laughs> Have you ever been scared at all? I mean, you're, you're working with wolves and rhinos. Have you ever been fearful? Um, I mean, I like to think of myself as being safe. <laughs> so, you know, I make sure my locks are locked and, you know, um, I'm, I'm not scared working with any of the animals. I'm not scared of the rhino. Um, see because you know I feel like I'm I'm doing my job I'm doing everything right um I mean I guess the scary part like it's storms like treat we've had limbs come down on fence lines and that would be the scary aspect of it but um never like I've never put myself in a dangerous position or anything like that but you have to be careful because you can easily do that too so that would be the potential scary part of it, but I'm not scared of working with these animals, because it's not like I'm going to stick my hand in with the wolf and have her bite my hand off. It's like, I hope not. No, so, you know, it's, 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 there's something, some type of barrier or something in between you and if it's a dangerous animal like the rhinos, yes, you could, they, they actually hand feed them, but they're not in there hand feeding them, so there's still that, those bars protecting you from them and this and that. Okay, and what kind of, what animals do you have here at the Potter Pot Zoo, if you could just list them off? <laughs> we have quite a few. Um, well, let's see. We have our education animals. So there's a bunch of random like animals up there that our docents or our volunteers that will hold, which would be um, ferrets, chinchilla. We have our doves, kestrel, um, opossums, bearded dragon, skink, uh, parrots. Um, we have our otters, and we have five otters right now. We have our um, two wolves. We have our two ostrich. Um, which we'll be getting bison soon with them. So that'd be, well, not with them, but in that exhibit they're in right now. Um, camels, llamas, we have our ride camels right now. We have tigers, lions, mandrills, lemurs, uh, red panda, donkeys, um, rhinos, uh, battered foxes are one of our newer animals. Uh, mongooses, another new animal we have. Uh, porcupine, uh, meerkats, plus like all the different animals in the bird and reptile house. You don't need to name those. Yeah. <laughs> now what has been the most memorable or odd or fun, you know, just weird experience you've had as a zookeeper? Just one of those stories you tell your family around the dinner table. Um, memorable, uh, 
memorable definitely would be um, uh, this last time we had the baby tiger cubs. They ended up doing the camera in their, where we had them at in the clinic, and people could log on and actually watch you do a tiger cub feeding. So I, I was able to tell my mom, hey, if you log in at this time, I'm going to be feeding the baby tiger cubs. Like, <laughs> so that was really cool and something memorable for my family. I mean, there's, I mean, animals, they're you know, like people. They do funny stuff. Like sometimes you're just like, ah, oh, it's a silly little animal right there. Um, like penguins, like they, they have very individual personalities. And I, I, one story with them is I told um, the one other keeper I work with that they were stealing the broom. And so he, he was like, no, no, they're not stealing the broom. Because I'd always come in and find it on the ground in the morning, and I know I put my tools away. And then the one day I came in, the one had the, the bristles uh, on the bottom of the broom, and it was dragging it up outside the exhibit. <laughs> so, like, you know, animals are funny, and they do, they're curious, and they do crazy things. And, but, I mean, I always tell that story to everybody when I do, like, my penguin talks and stuff, just because it's just something memorable. <laughs> so my job, basically, is to make sure everybody's healthy and be able to tell right away, like, if something's not right with that animal and to make sure I notify the proper people, like the vet staff, like, hey, this animal's not looking right. And so it's kind of hard because I, I, I have to, like, talk to them, <laughs> but they don't talk back to me, and that's where I can understand, so I need to, I'm, you know, I'm their, I'm their words for them, so I have to know, like, exactly, I need to know what they're feeling, you know, because I can tell the vet staff, hey, this animal's not feeling right, because this is the way he's acting. It looks like he's telling me, <laughs> so. Oh, walk like a chimpanzee. <laughs> Hop like a kangaroo. Roll like a lion roar. Talk like a cockatoo. There's just so much to see. There's just so much to do. There's lots of fun for me and lots of fun for you. Come on and let's go to the zoo. Campus has been roaring with construction since late spring. As the school year nears, Impact's Miguel Martinez brings us an update on this construction. If you're from Michigan, then you're probably familiar with the two main seasons, winter and construction. Construction season has made itself known in the city of East Lansing. Warm weather has brought with it closed roads, detour signs, dirt, and loud noises. The construction is on Grand River Avenue between Coolidge Road and Park Lane Road. The western part of Michigan Avenue will also see improvements. Along with the roads, sidewalks will also be repaired and traffic lights will be upgraded. The main projects started in March and are expected to be completed by October 4th. All of the construction will cost around a $6 million investment, says Carrier Rend from the Michigan Department of Transportation. It's essentially a two-part project. Um, we are doing sidewalk and intersection improvements along with resurfacing the roadway, which will make for a smoother, safer roadway for motorists. On Michigan Avenue, we're doing very similar work along with adding indirect left turns at a couple locations there. Oren says the construction will improve traffic flow. However, right now, they're a little inconvenient for some. The intersection of MAC and Albert was shut down for two weeks, which may seem like a short time, but... For students, I try to drive, um, so I can't tell you how many times I've been late. Um, I try taking the bus, 
unfortunately the bus takes about 40 minutes to get just to where I live. And then because the traffic, it takes that much longer. That was Michigan State University junior Joey Donovic. He is taking two summer classes on campus. The bus service that Donovic was talking about is CATA, which operates in the greater Lansing area. CATA service planning manager Jim Froelich says the company is doing its best to combat the construction. Well, certainly the major route, uh, interestingly enough, is Route 1, which runs between downtown Lansing and the Meridian Mall. And not so much because it was detoured, but because of the ADA ramp improvements and the various um, pieces of work along the route, the buses could still get through, but they couldn't stop and pick people up. Oren says the construction that most affects students will be done by the start of the fall semester. Especially with all the work in this area this year, we try and concentrate it. We know if we're going to be in an area, let's get everything done that we possibly can and then get out so we can give you back a good road and not be in your way then for several more years. Only time will tell how long this construction season will last. With Impact News, I'm Miguel Martinez. Although once a prisoner, today, many call him a hero, Nelson Mandela, a man who served as president of South Africa from 1994 to 1999 and helped break the apartheid in the country. As he is ill for the past month, we take time today to remember the man. I spoke with history professor at Michigan State, Peter Alegi, about the country led by a man named Nelson Mandela. Well, Nelson Mandela is often equated with the history of South Africa, particularly the modern South Africa. And who is Nelson Mandela? Well, he's arguably one of the most important people of the 20th century, and he has survived uh, into the 21st. He just turned 95 a few days ago. And, you know, in many ways, his life has uh, been described as you know, the classic uh, a hero's journey, a kind of almost like a quest narrative. He grew up, was born in the deep rural areas of the Trans Sky in the Eastern Cape, uh, the year that uh, uh, thousands of people died of the influenza uh, pandemic in uh, South Africa, like many other places around the world. That was uh, July 18th, 1918, that Mandela was born in a small ha rural hamlet uh, at Enveso. And, um, you know, he was of a minor royal stock. His father was a, was a chief. And 
he eventually ended up growing up uh, essentially at the feet of the king of the Tembu, the chief, paramount chief of the Tembu people, one of the main uh, Tosa-speaking groups of the Eastern Cape. Uh, but then he became uh, a, a lawyer, a practicing lawyer, uh, one of the very first Africans to have a law firm uh, in Johannesburg at a time of uh, deep racism on the part of the white minority. He became a revolutionary, of course. Uh, but he was also a husband. And we probably got to know him internationally because he was a prisoner, a, a political prisoner, for nearly 30 years. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, maybe the younger generations remember him mostly as a president of a democratic South Africa. Mm -hmm. And why was he a prisoner, for those who don't know? Well, Nelson Mandela uh, spent most of his life fighting for freedom and justice in South Africa. Uh, he grew up in a country that was segregationist, a country ruled by uh, less than 20% of the people. That was the white minority of both uh, Dutch descent, but also uh, of English-speaking stock. And uh, this minority created a system of laws uh, that uh, essentially oppressed the racial, uh, excuse me, the, the black majority through these uh, racist uh, laws. And uh, in 1948, these laws became even harsher under the system known as apartheid, which is an Afrikaans word. Uh, Afrikaans is a local language derived from Old Dutch uh, of the majority of whites in South Africa. It means apartness complete separation between people of different um, skin pigmentation, uh, an extremely um, tyrannical and oppressive uh, system. And remember, this is after World War II that apartheid mm -hmm. comes into place. You know, a massive global war has been fought against totalitarianism uh, for freedom and democracy, and the world seems to be going in that direction, and South Africa takes the opposite tack and moves towards a more rigid uh, racist system. And Mandela found himself square in the middle of this incredible uh, moment. And uh, he was part of a huge group of black uh, political activists, um, many of them were part of the African National Congress, the leading liberation movement in South Africa, and he fought against injustice uh, for freedom and equality in South Africa, and he, he paid uh, extremely dearly for his commitment. And when he came out of jail, he was a still a prominent political figure. How does that happen where he was, you know, as some people call the world's most famous prisoner? How do you become the world's most famous prisoner, and why did people, why were they so drawn to him? That's a really good question. I think the reason people were drawn to him, both in South Africa and internationally, had to do with how much he did prior to going to prison. Mm -hmm. right, he had already gained uh, incredible standing as a man of valor, a man of courage, a man of principle, uh, willing to stand up in the most difficult moments. Let me give you an example. Right, In 1948, apartheid uh, begins extending the segregation that already existed and making it harsher and more complete. And Nelson Mandela basically became the leader of the black political uh, movements uh, that were taking place at the time. Uh, in 1952, um, the ANC, the African National Congress, uh, together with some uh, other allies like the Indian Congress in South Africa, launched a defiance campaign, which was similar to what you saw with the civil rights movement in the United States, whereby activists started violating the segregationist laws um, in order to prove their injustice. 
And so, for example, in 1952, during the Defiance Campaign, thousands of black South Africans sat in white-only uh, sections of buses or sat in the, uh, on the white-only benches in parks, um, you know, used whites-only toilets, and so on and so forth, essentially saying, we're not going to tolerate these racist laws. And Mandela led, he was the leader of the Defiance Campaign. As a result, he was arrested numerous times, and he grew in stature. Mm -hmm. uh, he was also a very prominent activist when uh, the blueprint of the liberation struggle called the Freedom Charter, a kind of almost a, a constitution in the making for a new uh, democratic South Africa, was adopted in 1955. And he was put on trial, and he was on trial for six years as a result of his role in uh, coagulating this alliance of people um, arguing for one person, one vote in South Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, he was acquitted in that trial, and soon thereafter, of course, uh, he decided that uh, a different kind of action was necessary. He had been a nonviolent activist up until about 1960, but uh, following a massacre of 69 civilians in uh, March of 1960 at a place called Sharpville, just south of Johannesburg, uh, innocent civilians shot, many of them in the back, by the police. They were protesting uh, particularly past laws, which in South Africa were laws that required all black people to carry a document that had to be produced uh, uh, if the authorities requested it. And if your pass, so to speak, was not in order, they could arrest you. And normal people, ordinary people who had been home and maybe left their house without their jacket uh, would be criminalized, would be thrown in prison alongside murderers and rapists and, and, and ordinary criminals. And so millions of people were suffering under this terrible system. And what did Mandela say when the police slaughtered these people? Uh, at Sharpeville in March of 1960. He said the following, and I quote, nonviolence was a tactic that should be abandoned when it no longer worked. Hmm. So while he adopted Gandhian tactics, he, for him, it wasn't the end all and be all, pacifism or, or nonviolence or civil disobedience. It was a tactic. And once the police started shooting men, women, and children who were unarmed, um, and many of them in the back, to him it meant that you know, as, as he uh, uh, said, referring to uh, a Tswana language proverb in his autobiography, the attacks of the wild beast cannot be averted with only bare hands. Mm -hmm. You need to take up arms. And so Mandela became the first military commander of the spear of the nation, Umkonto Wesizwe. He became an armed guerrilla. He became uh, a terrorist, in fact, for the South African state. And mm -hmm. not many people know this, but the State Department of the United States government uh, still had Nelson Mandela on the terrorist list as late as 2008. Past his presidency. <laughs> well past his wow. presidency, well into his retirement. <laughs> oh he was still goodness. officially a terrorist. Uh, and I think that's, that's important mm -hmm. because it says a lot about Mandela's standing both within South Africa and internationally. And you know, when he was caught in August of 1962, he was arrested by the South African police. Everyone thought this is the end of Mandela. They're going to put him on trial, they're going to have a sham trial, and they're going to hang him because he is a dangerous prisoner, dangerous uh, political activist, and now he's a prisoner, and the South African government probably wants to get rid of him. And a huge campaign uh, worldwide was started to save his life. And it was not just Mandela. There were several others on trial as well. Well, the trial started in 1963. Lots of foreign reporters were there. 
uh, microphones were not allowed, no taping devices of any kind, and yet a BBC reporter managed to sneak in a tape recorder, <laughs> and we do have audio of one of the most amazing political speeches of the 20th, 20th century, and that was Mandela's famous statement from the dock. Uh, he didn't testify because basically the prison, the um, uh, uh, Mandela and the other uh, people who were charged felt that this was going to be, you know, a foregone conclusion that they were going to be found guilty by by the apartheid state. And he gave this amazing speech, uh, you know, dozens and dozens of pages long, and went on for about five hours. And he closes with with this incredible statement. This is, I think, the most important statement Mandela made before uh, he was released from prison. Here's what he said. And again, he's been standing for five hours, speaking in court with uh, um, lots and lots of people in the, in the gallery. All the attorneys are staring intently, uh, the judges as well. And here's what, he, what Mandela says. During my lifetime, I have dedicated myself to the struggle of the African people. I have fought against white domination, and I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal which I hope to live for and to achieve. But if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. Wow. That's Nelson Mandela. <laughs> That's Nelson Mandela. He says, I was sure I was going to be sentenced to death. But he and wasn't. He said, but he... he had this kind of, of bravery mm -hmm. um, that people admired mm -hmm. and still do to this day. Right. And then in 1994, he was elected president. Now, how did South Africans respond to his elected president? Well, coming out of 27 and a half years uh, in prison. I guess he was in a think tank, so they really thought he knew what he was doing. <laughs> you know, he had had a long time to think about right. uh, many of the issues that were facing South Africa by mm -hmm. 1990. And there was huge celebrations everywhere, of course. I mean, by then, he was the most famous political prisoner in the world. Mm -hmm. So it was it was a fantastic celebration. I remember we were in college. Uh, I was in college at the time. And with my college classmates, you know, we had a huge party to celebrate <laughs> Mandela's release but we we like many south africans didn't know what was coming i mean after all he had just been released from prison it wasn't as if democracy had suddenly dawned mm -hmm. right and mandela had already had secret uh, talks with the um, south african uh, regime mm -hmm. while in prison where they had hammered out some general points of agreement that laid the groundwork for what some have called the negotiated revolution and so South Africans celebrated, uh, but they also looked up to Mandela and uh, that uh, core of, of mostly ANC leaders who were talking to the apartheid regime, uh, hoping that they would get um, a free and democratic South Africa very soon. Now, it took about four years between Mandela's release and the first democratic elections, and it was a difficult time. I was in South Africa uh, in 1993 when you know, Mandela was called on on a, on a very difficult evening when basically the, the number two person in the ANC and what the, the person many people felt was going to be the successor of Mandela was assassinated in his driveway by two white supremacists. His name was Chris Hani, a really impressive uh, individual and, and wonderful human being. And he was gunned down as he picked up his Saturday newspaper on Easter Saturday. And we felt that the country was on the brink of a racial bloodbath. 
and nobody really knew what to do. I walked out of uh, the small house where I was staying with uh, people who I worked with, and there were military vehicles on the streets, hardly any uh, people walking on the street, which is very unusual in a South African city. Um, I was in Cape Town at the time. And that evening at about 8 p.m., Mandela came on the television. Not the president of South Africa, who at the time was uh, F.W. de Klerk, um, mm. who Mandela would share the Nobel Peace Prize uh, with a few months later, but Mandela. Mandela came on the television. And at you know, the 8 o'clock news, he came and he gave an incredibly powerful speech, which essentially said to people, cool it. Right? This is a terrible thing that has happened, but these two assassins are going to be dealt with by the justice system, um, and we have a greater uh, goal that we need to reach. And that goal, of course, was the elections. Mm -hmm. And we can't have a civil war now when, <laughs> when the prize is within reach. And you, know, you really saw that evening how Mandela was already essentially the president. Mm -hmm. Um, but it would take several more months before a date would be set. Uh, but, uh, you know, we all knew who was really running the country by that time, and it was already Mandela. And Mandela had another, you know, he had another way of getting things done, is he went to athletics. He looked into athletics to try to unite a country. How did he do that? And you studied it. I mean, you're an expert in this topic. So how exactly did Mandela take athletics to unite South Africa? That's a really interesting question that uh, goes right to the heart, really, of, of what I love to do, which is look at the social and political history of sport up. <laughs> in South Africa, right? Um, I think it starts with his personal love of sports. Uh, he opens his autobiography, which, if listeners out there haven't read it, pick it up, Long Walk to Freedom, the autobiography of Nelson Mandela, one of the greatest books ever written. Um, he describes his childhood in terms of his stick fighting as a, as a, as a youth. Uh, this is a very popular sport still today in the rural areas of South Africa because boys are expected to herd cattle. And that's how you spend a good chunk of your days is herding your, uh, your father or your male relative's cattle. And you have these great fencing matches, essentially, with the other boys. And you prove your manhood. You entertain yourself. Uh, and sometimes it gets very competitive. And you might uh, have these stick fighting competitions against neighboring villages. And, and you know, the better you are, uh, the greater your social standing and your visibility. So he had this, this deep passion for sport as a very young kid. When he moved to the city, particularly to Johannesburg, he became an amateur boxer. And so while he was pursuing his political activism and he was studying law and eventually also opened a, a law firm with his friend Oliver Tambo, uh, he went in the evenings and sparred at this uh, very famous gym in what is today Soweto, the big black uh, um, town uh, outside of the main uh, then white Johannesburg. And so he was never a professional prize fighter, but he was a very good heavyweight uh, amateur boxer. Um, in school, he also ran track. Uh, he did play soccer, although in his autobiography, he says he was a terrible player. <laughs> so we'll take his word for it. Um, and also when he was in prison, you know, he was not allowed to play sports because he was in a particular section of Robben Island prison, the kind of South African Alcatraz for political prisoners. Um, they did not allow, the authorities did not allow um, the important prisoners like Mandela and several of his comrades to play sports. Mm. Uh, he was eventually allowed in the late 70s to play tennis, uh, which he played in the courtyard outside his cell. But uh, the other prisoners on Robben Island in, in what was called the general population, they were eventually allowed um, to play soccer, and they even had prison Olympics. But Mandela was never allowed. So I think he had this... Um, deep love for sports, but also an understanding of how um, 
powerful it could be. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually, when he became president, he saw that rugby, which was the sport of the white minority, was about to host the World Cup. Uh, and he thought this is a great opportunity to get recalcitrant whites, you know, these these more conservative whites who are not fully on board with the transition from apartheid to democracy to really embrace what is going on in South Africa, because South Africa, as Mandela liked to say, belongs to all who live in it, black and white. And so he understood the value of sport um, culturally, but he also remembered that during the 1960s and 70s and, and into the 80s, white South Africa had been excluded from the Olympics. They had been excluded from the Soccer World Cup. This was part of the sport boycott. And so he knew that there was va- political value uh, within uh, sport. And he also knew uh, that you know, sports stars were revered in South African societies, like they are in ours. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, they're m- much more important and valuable than politicians, right? Um, and so he embrace the springbok, the, the, the gazelle, the South African gazelle, as the symbol of the white rugby team at the World Cup in 1995, which is closely associated with apartheid. Mm-hmm. And, a lo- and in the movie Invictus, Clint Eastwood's uh, movie Invictus, starring uh, uh, Matt Damon and, and Morgan Freeman as Mandela, there's a scene where uh, Mandela intervenes in a, in a meeting where um, they're getting rid of the springbok mm-hmm. emblem because it's, it's a horrible memory of the apartheid past, and Mandela convinces those officials to keep it as a way to embrace more conservative whites and say, you know, we're with you. We, we, will, we will retain the symbol that's important to you because we want you to be part of a racially united and reconciled uh, South Africa. And this is a really important moment, of course, in the movie, but also in the real um, story, because uh, those Springboks only had one player of color. Chester Williams. Everyone else was white. Mm -hmm. And so this was a really generous act on the part of Mandela. And South Africa ended up winning the (laughs) World Cup, right? Mm -hmm. And so like sports tend to do, you know, they convert these kinds of narratives into something almost magical. Mm -hmm. And so for a short while, South Africa really was united across racial lines. And Mandela had a lot to do with that. Well, my last question is, what can we learn from Nelson Mandela? If you could say one thing that people can take away from this man that we, some call hero, some call president, others call Nelson Mandela, what is it? I was just listening to an interview with his archivist, uh, Vern Harris, who is a good friend of mine, and Vern said that the word that comes up uh, in his mind when he was posed a very similar question was endurance. Endurance. And I like that because endurance gives me the sense of a person who was always thinking in the long term, who was able to see beyond himself. We think of political leaders in a very cynical way these days. They're, they're only in it for their own personal power or, for worse, for their enrichment. Uh, we, have a, you know, we tend to view um, politicians and political leaders in a very negative way, and I think there's some basis for that. But I think a lot of what happens in politics is very short-term uh, oriented and driven by short-term goals. Mandela, at various points in his life, could have made different choices. For example, when when he entered into secret talks with the apartheid government, the regime offered him uh, to be released if he force uh, if he. Um, th- 
told the ANC to end the armed struggle against apartheid. So he could have gotten a degree of freedom, shall we say, uh, for relinquishing uh, this struggle. He said, no, I'd rather remain in prison um, because at this point, you know, if we give up our arms, we'll still be living in a deeply racist and unequal society, mm -hmm. right? His thinking was long-term. One person, one vote. South Africa belongs to all who live in it. And he endured, after he had already endured two decades in prison, he had fought tuberculosis, um, you know, here he's offered the carrot of walking out of prison, sort of a free man, and he turns it down. Or when uh, uh, F.W. de Klerk reveals to the world that he's going to release Mandela on February 2nd, 1990, he makes this incredible announcement, stunning everybody, pretty much, and Mandela says, oh, no, but I, I can't go out of, I can't leave prison yet. He says, we have to prepare properly for this. He has spent 27 and a half years in prison, and he waits nine more days oh before he walks out of uh, prison uh, at Victor First there Prison. So endurance, a man who always had, I think, uh, the ultimate goal in mind and paid dearly for pursuit of that. And, of course, he endured great pain, personal pain. He had no family life. He spent very little time with his children and with his two wives. Um, and I, I think that's why he has enjoyed being a grandfather in his retirement so much. He spends, uh, you know, he has spent until he got very sick recently almost all his free time with his gra grandchildren and great-grandchildren and his other relatives because he, you know, was not able to give to his family. So endurance is what comes to mind. Well, thank you very much. That's Peter talking about Nelson, Endurance Mandela. Thank you. Thank you. And that was Invictus, a poem enjoyed by Mandela. It was recited by Morgan Freeman, who played Mandela in the film Invictus.
The Michigan State University Museum has an exciting weekend planned. It is presenting the Great Lakes Folk Festival in downtown East Lansing. We sat down with one of the planners, Laura Hillu, to get a sneak preview of the event. So welcome to Exposure. Thank How are you. you today? It's great to be here. Well, thank you for coming. So we've got this big Great Lakes Folk Festival coming this weekend. Can you tell us about it? Sure. It's a three-day celebration of culture, tradition, community, and we actually consider it a living outdoor exhibition. So we're kind of taking our show on the road from the MSU Museum and dropping right down in the city of East Lansing. Excellent. Yeah. Now, what can people who come look forward to seeing and experiencing? Well, we've got multiple music and dance stages. So throughout the weekend, we'll have close to 50 different performances and showcases where people can um, savor and experience all kinds of musical traditions, whether it's um, blues, bluegrass, Celtic, Cajun, Caribbean. We've got some music coming down from Quebec, some Quebecois music. You know, we'll have some polka. We will have just a, a tremendous variety of distinctive cultures. And we, we really we really try and showcase the way traditions are passed down, how we have these vibrant, thriving traditions. So we'll have these master artists who are just really invested in sharing their traditions. And they play pretty good music. And who are some of these artists? Okay, well... Actually, we've got uh, the Clear Fork Bluegrass Quartet that's coming up from Chardon, Ohio. We've got um, Den de Leon, that's one of our Quebecois groups from Quebec. We have Mike Espy and Yakety Yak doing Chicago and Memphis blues. We have Kaivama doing Finnish American music. We have Johnny Koenig doing Slovenian polka. We have Lani Aloha and Aloha Lives, who is doing Hawaiian ukulele and some hula dancing. And do they come from Hawaii? She's actually living in the Chicago area now, okay. but yeah, that's that's. <laughs> definitely where her Bring the island are. breeze to the that's windy right, city that's right <laughs> i i could go on we have mm -hmm. timbo bravo doing cuban caribbean music we have svetla vladeva doing eastern european and balkan music and for the first time ever we're presenting Hmong music an, an asian sung poetry tradition um, mai zong vu is coming to us she's uh, an immigrant who's now based in the madison wisconsin area and so does Hmong music can you compare it to something that maybe people are familiar to it's unlike probably anything you've <laughs> ever heard. It's um, a cappella sung poetry. So unless you speak Hmong, you probably mm -hmm. won't understand it. But but again, these are artists who will kind of I interpret or explain their traditions and how it's been passed on, um, how she how she does what she does, what it means, what it conveys. So it, it'll be poetry, but kind of music lyric poetry. And yeah, that's what has been going on for 27 years. So how have these to come together with 
space, so we might have recycled or upcycled clothing, textiles, tote bags made from material that had a previous life, or rag rug makers and quilters who are reclaiming material that, that had another life. We'll have metal sculptors who are also using reclaimed metalwork and some ceramics that also looks at upcycling or, or repurposing some maybe old discarded materials. Very diverse. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> now, when you say folk, what's your definition of folk? That's an excellent question. That's an excellent question. I always am curious. And from right. here, well, I had no idea it encompassed all of that. It's it's an incredibly diverse word, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's the people, right? And so it, it really looks at what are these distinctive cultural practices and traditions that really are sustained, whether it's from a particular region or um, from a, a church, an ethnic group, an immigrant population. So how are these traditions kind of sustained and passed on and, and maintained their authenticity? Wow. So that's that's why we have, you know, under the folk umbrella, you know, we'll have bluegrass and we'll have blues and we'll have gospel sometimes, you know, featured at the festival and just these, these distinctive traditions that really give us a sense of who people are, what they value, how they express themselves. And how does the Folk Festival itself parallel what you're doing at the MSU Museum? Well, like I said, we, we consider this a living exhibition. So in a lot of ways, it's a way for people to come and, you know, certainly experience something that they value. You know, we, we always have a contingent of people that love Cajun music or love Celtic music and, and consider that sort of something that they've grown up with and they really treasure. But at the same time, maybe they're exposed to something they haven't seen before, like this, this Hmong sung poetry or, you know, they, they've never seen Balkan music performed before. So there's that element of of treasuring something that you've maybe grown up with but also experiencing something new so in that way it's a lot like an exhibit where there's maybe an element of familiar but there's also an element of something new that you're experiencing and learning a little bit more outside of your own life experience and what are you most looking forward to well, the music is always a highlight for me. I'm nicely placed um, on the street so I can hear music from a couple of different <laughs> stages. And then I'm also nicely placed next to the foodways area. So mm -hmm. lucky me, right? Very strategic. <laughs> I like it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and what kind of music are you a fan of? Well, I've, I've come to really, really appreciate bluegrass music much, much more since I started working on this event. Um, banjo, mandolin, fiddle, um, really liking that kind of music. I love Cajun music. I mean, you just, you just it's so infectious. You just can't sit still when you listen to music like that. And Quebecois is always a personal favorite for me. And what is Quebecois? It, it comes from the northern part of Quebec. And so it's, it's a lot of French spoken, um, high energy, jigs, reels, a lot of percussion that's done with the hands or the feet. Okay. So very danceable, very upbeat, just, just a lot of fun. Well, it sounds like you have just about everything at this festival. So this is Laura with the Great Lakes Folk Festival. Anything else you'd like to add? Sounds great. I hope to see you there. Thank you very much. And that was Laura Hillou of the Michigan State University Museum. And that's all we have for you tonight. We will end our show with music that will be featured at the festival. Special thanks to our station manager, Sam Riddle, and our general manager, Ed Glazer. Have a lovely week. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next time, I'm Abby Newton, Impact Exposure, 89FM. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure.
As long as you stay mine 